Hello and welcome to the Pactum. This is Pat Abendroth, and today we are going to be talking to you about ancient heresies like Oprahism, Andy Stanleyism, and Stephen Furtickism. And you might be thinking, what in the world? Those are not ancient heresies, and you would be correct, they're not, and yet they mimic ancient heresies. So stay tuned for relevance. Today we are continuing on the series with help from the heretics, or otherwise known as Harry and the heretics. And we're going to be talking about Gnostics, Marcians, and Docetus. Sounds like lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Gnostics, Marcians, and Docetus, oh my. This is episode 61, and we are doing a Lone Ranger edition. A fiery horse with the speed of light, a cloud of dust, and a hearty high silver. The Lone Ranger. I'm without Mike Grimes, my co-host. He's up to other things. But I do want you to know that I have my Pactum hat on. So I have some extra theological superpowers that I hope can offset Mike's absence. I don't know. You'll have to be the judge of that. We'll see if it works. I'm hoping that between that and a little coffee and a little water, we can do this Lone Ranger edition. Okay, the matter of heresies. Today we're talking about Gnosticism, Marcionism, and Doceticism. Uh, hard to say fast all at once. But this matter of heresy, let me remind you, is important because heresy exists because orthodoxy exists first. We have what is true. We have what is right. We have what Jude says is the faith. So it's objective, the objective body of Christian doctrine, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So there's even a finality that comes with it. And that's why Jude can say in Jude 3 that we are to contend. Uh, You can't contend for something that doesn't exist. So we contend for the faith, that which is true and right, that which is orthodox, And that means we want to refute, and it is our obligation to join other Christians throughout history and now to refute those who contradict it, to refute those who promote heresy. Heresy would be major error, error that would keep you from heaven, error that would be attacking the gospel, the person and work of Christ, the way of salvation. So it's not just a preference disagreement with uh, with other Christians. Uh, it actually would cause someone to maybe not be a Christian. So that's what we're up to today. Glad you're joining us. Glad you're allowing us to be a part of your life. It's going to be a great episode, I think. Gnosticism, Marcionism, and Doceticism alive and well today in different forms and different manners, and we want to make you aware of them. Let's start with Gnosticism sounds like knowledge because that's basically what it means. So if you're in the gno with a G, you have the gnosis, um, the gnosis, or sometimes even the Bible uses epigenosis, the super knowledge. And really, when we're talking about Gnosticism, we're talking about those who have special knowledge or special experience. And so it's above and beyond scripture. It's above and beyond the faith. It's something new. It's something special. It's something secretive oftentimes. And according to heresiologists, what a word, heresiologists, the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, talks about heresiologists, and they say that they regarded Gnosticism as the product of the combination of Greek philosophy and Christianity. So think matter is bad, spirit is good. That's probably an overgeneralization, uh, but think in those terms. So we're going to add from the philosophies uh, 
Outside of the Bible, we're going to add from other religions and we're going to remake Christianity and have a different kind and new and improved epigenosis kind of Christianity. Michael Horton in The Christian Faith says that Gnosticism is a diverse or was a diverse group of writers and beliefs in the second and later centuries. Its primary underpinning was dualism. So think uh, matter, bad, spirit, good. Two examples of this dualism are the Gnostic contrast between the God of the Old Testament and the loving God of the New Testament, and the Gnostic contrast between matter being evil and spirit being good. The Gnostics sought redemption from this evil material creation through secret knowledge, gnosis, possessed only by the spiritually elite. This heresy was decisively challenged by Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyons, in his Against Heresies, from which comes much of the information we have about Gnosticism. So keep that in mind. Also keep in mind that when people talk about Gnosticism being a first century heresy, it's probably not correct. Uh, There is what we might call proto-Gnosticism, incipient Gnosticism, but it's a second century heresy, even though maybe the the winds were blowing in that direction already, but we have Christianity first, and then we have a corruption, Gnostic Christianity, that follows that. I suppose I should give you a little sampling of that Irenaeus guy in his Against Heresies, because I thought he uh, is pretty pointed in what he says. Here's Irenaeus. Uh, He was born in about 130 AD. According to my notes, error, he says, indeed, is never set forth in its naked deformity, lest being thus exposed, it should at once be detected. But it is craftily decked out in an attractive dress, so as by its outward form to make it appear to the inexperienced, ridiculous as the expression may seem, more true than truth itself. So I like the way Irenaeus puts a a nice point on things for us to understand. Moving along, let's highlight some features, some characteristics. I have three written down here. I'm sure there could be more, and there is overlap in light of that Horton definition and in light of other materials. Uh, Gnosticism, it's known for its special knowledge or enlightenment or a special kind of experience. It's also known for its dualism, spirit, good, physical, or flesh, bad. And also regarding its morality, it tends to go one to one of two directions. Uh, in more, when it comes to morality, it, since flesh is bad, it's almost like it doesn't really, it's not real. So you can just send it up. You can do whatever you want without any consequence uh, because there's really no such thing as the flesh anyway. Or you have the other extreme since flesh is bad. Let's do everything we can to say no to it. And we're going to try to become a, what would later be called ascetic, uh, going without saying no to any desires that you might have, even if we would otherwise say they're good in biblical Christianity. So let's give some response now. So think with me, if you would, Pactum listeners, how would we respond biblically to these features of Gnosticism. Well, I think, first of all, we would say that special knowledge is not required. If you have the Bible, if you have God's final revelation in his son, and we have the scriptures, we don't have to have some extra biblical special revelation, some kind of secret revelation. My sister used to listen to the band Sticks when we were growing up. I was never really a fan. If you are a fan, may the Lord bless you. But they had that song, Mr. Roboto. And they would say, secret, secret, I got a secret. And I tend to think it's like Gnosticism, secret, secret, I got a secret. And so uh, we see this in, in theology today. We see it in things like the charismatic movement where you, oh, sure, you have the Bible. Yes, you have Jesus, Hebrews chapter one, but 
I have had a special word from the Lord. And so you've got to come talk to me. And you too, uh, if you really want to be godly, you have to have some kind of special new dream or experience or revelation. That's just Gnosticism kind of redone today. So when I listen to charismatics, I watch charismatics. I tend to think a lot of different things, but I think that's just a a new and improved or maybe worsened form of Gnosticism. The Bible's not enough. Christ is not enough. But it's not only in existence today out within charismaticism. It's also in other circles. Uh, I think about that book that was written. That's a best-selling book. Heaven is for real. That's just Gnosticism. Uh, the boy who supposedly went to heaven and then describes things in heaven that are patently diametrically opposed to the Bible, that tells us he didn't really go to heaven. But now uh, you're going to make lots of money off of lots of gullible people. And now all of a sudden it's a, it's kind of a, it's a Gnosticism. So the Bible's not enough. Christ is not enough. Let me tell you about when I went to heaven. One of my friends, Rob Clay, who used to be on the church staff where I am at Omaha Bible Church, uh, Rob moved and was pastoring in the same town uh, where the boy uh, lived and his father was a pastor and he'd grown up somewhat. And I remember my friend Rob telling me how he asked him in the grocery store or the store somewhere in their town, tell, tell me about this this heaven stuff that you experienced. And he's questioning him, him about things that are actually anti-biblical. And he said, the guy just ignored him. He just pretended like he didn't exist. So well-meaning or not, um, let's not be gullible. Let's not buy into Gnosticism. Uh, we, we don't need anything extra. We don't need to create the haves and the have-nots, which Gnosticism does, which Charismaticism does. Uh, you might want to listen to episode 35 of the Pactum. It's called God told me. And you'd want to listen to that because really we're dealing with charismaticism and mysticism, which is a kind of Gnostic tendency. Now regarding Gnosticism saying that physical is bad, how would we assess that from a biblical perspective? Well, hopefully we'd say, well, wait a second, physical isn't bad because from the very beginning, God created. So if we have creation, we have matter, we have physical beings created. Uh, And what does God say? God says it is very good. Not only that, we have a real incarnation, Jesus, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem. And if he's not human, if he's not one of us, then we don't have redemption for us. Uh, We have a bodily resurrection from Jesus. So keep in mind, that's our pushback. God made matter. Matter is good, even though it can be used for bad. Michael Horton, in his Systematic Theology of the Christian Faith, makes an interesting observation about Gnosticism, uh, even in our day, through people like Mary Baker Eddy. And you'll know her. She's the founder of Christian Science, which, as one person said, it's neither Christian nor science, kind of like grape nuts. See, see what I did there? Okay. Uh, neither grape nor nuts, this crazy cereal is. Do they still make grape nuts? I don't know if they still do or not. But Mary Baker Eddy, she's the one that introduced in a kind of a Gnostic way, uh, according to her special matter is bad, physical is bad, sickness is only in your head, it's only mental, death is only mental, it's not a real kind of thing. She's the one that introduced our popular phrase that we still use today. When we talk about someone dying, we say they passed on or they passed away. Uh, and Mike Horton says that's actually a, an agnostic kind of thing, a kind of Eastern religion uh, married into or brought into Christianity. And it's actually not true. Horton says in this basically Gnostic worldview, the material world, including our bodies, evil and suffering are erroneous beliefs that can be overcome by proper enlightenment in the eternal principles of universal harmony. Very 
Gnostic. And as, as we round this out and get ready to move on, as for morality, biblical morality would account for, yeah, what we do with our bodies matters. And so we can't just live however we want to live. God has revealed his will to us, what's good for us, what's honoring to him, what's good for other people. And so we have actual morality that matters, how we live, how we think, how we treat other people. It's not just a mirage. It's not just a a non-material matter that doesn't matter, if you will. And then also the other extreme we would want to avoid, we're not called to live by some kind of asceticism, higher standard uh, than what God actually says. Uh, Some people try to tell us this because of some experience they've had or because of some extra word from God that they've had or whatever. Biblical Christianity would say, oh, no, this is what the Bible says. Don't impose on me something extra kind of legalistically. And that, too, can be coming from a Gnostic kind of impression or background. So let's now move on. We're not going to totally leave Gnosticism behind, but we are going to move on to another ancient heresy that still shows itself today, and it's called Marcionism, or as we talked about before, Marcionism. So we've just offended all of our listeners named Marcy, and or we've offended everyone named Mark. So don't be offended, Pactum Verse. It's called, let's call it Marcionism, and uh, with a C. So Marcionism is, well, before we even get into it, you might find it interesting that Polycarp, the martyr, martyred in 155, uh, Polycarp called Marcion the firstborn of Satan. So tell us how you really feel, Polycarp the martyr. Well, he does tell us. So Marcion is a second century heretic who isn't Gnostic per se, but he definitely was intrigued by things that were Gnostic. So the whole dualism, uh, flesh being bad, spirit being good. And what he does is he carries this into his perspective of the Old Testament versus the New Testament. Marcion, this dude hated himself some Old Testament. Um, He, I think he hated the New Testament as well. I think he hated biblical Christianity, but he said he affirmed the New Testament. So it's Yahweh, Old Testament God, uh, rules, law, judgment, anger versus Jesus, nice, uh, gracious, kind, that kind of thing. So Old Testament God versus the New Testament God. Uh, Marcion had a lot of wealth. He was a rich guy and he had lots of political connections and political savvy. And sometimes that works just fine. But other times uh, when people are used to getting whatever they want and getting their way because they have so much money, well, that's what happened with Marcion when he came to Rome and he gave the church all kinds of money and he wanted things done his way with his heresies included. And so he was excommunicated. He was disfellowshipped, as one author said, to put it nicer, in 144 AD. Marcion, think anti-Old Testament, but he also got rid of New Testament books. He he doctored up the, the book of Luke. See what I did there? Dr. Luke wrote the gospel according to Luke. That was almost funny. So he he cut out portions of Luke. He doctored up the gospel according to Luke. Then he included Paul's writings, at least 10 of them. He didn't like the pastoral epistles. And uh, just made a mess of everything. So uh, denied that Christ was actually born. He just was appeared. The list goes on and on. Uh, He thought the apostles had become Judaized, except for Paul, who was protected from it. Uh, Flesh is unclean. He thought married people shouldn't get baptized, therefore, because, you know, they're doing things according to their passions. Maybe they could get baptized at the end of their life. Maybe he wanted water to be used instead of wine for the Lord's Supper. 
I know some people that might want to do that, but I digress. Uh, no, no, no law. Salvation is by grace alone, but not in the way that we would mean it. And maybe one additional thing that I thought was rather interesting, ironic, amusing, uh, when I was reading Justin Holcomb's book, Know the Heretics, he says, and he points out the fact that Marcion uh, sought to distinguish between law and gospel. And it made me laugh because while that might be true, he didn't seek to distinguish between law and gospel the same way Luther, Calvin, Spurgeon, or we Protestants would. Uh, he was doing so more more so in a different sense where it's Old Testament versus the New Testament. So it made me kind of chuckle because that's actually something really important. So where can we find Marcion-like teaching today? In different areas, in different, in different avenues, and maybe you're already thinking ahead with me about that, we see Marcion-like tendencies among those who are simply biblically ignorant, those who may, maybe have heard something uh, of the Old Testament and they think, oh, that God of the Old Testament, he's, he's very angry. And then they forget that there's this thing called the book of Revelation, uh, which sounds a lot like the very same God because it is the very same God. So there's some people that just don't know this is this reminds me of Oprah. I was listening to Oprah one time. Never really watched the show, I confess. Uh, but listening to Oprah one time go on and on, uh, making fun of preachers she heard growing up, how they would preach about God being a jealous God. And she thought, how stupid is that? How ridiculous is that? Because why would God be jealous? That doesn't even make any sense. How how petty, how trivial this Old Testament God is. Never mind the fact that if idolatry is true and God talks about it in the Old and New Testament. There's only one true living God. Therefore, God, for God to not be jealous of anything other than true worship would make God wrong. So there is that kind of petty response to God. We see it from people like Richard Dawkins as well, who's biblically ignorant, but would like to attack biblical Christianity. Now, we see it in other areas. We see it not only in the biblically ignorant, and we like to help the biblically ignorant, not just make fun of them, but America's theologian, as she's often been called, Oprah, doesn't help anything at all. But moving on, we also see it from what I'm going to call the theological left, those who are more left-leaning. And we do see this with theological liberalism where they don't like that God in the Old Testament who's wrathful, who's vengeful, who's upset with sin. Again, never mind the fact that Jesus talks about hell an awful lot and things like that, but they make it sound like it's we're against the old and for the new. First uh, Corinthians 13, it's the love language. We'll, we're going to include that, but boy, that God of the Old Testament is bad. And we have even heard it amongst some evangelicals, uh, even today, that infamous statement from Andy Stanley, who said we need to unhinge Christianity. Christianity from the Old Testament. Uh, wh what do you hear when you hear that? You hear Marcionism. That's very Marcion-like of Andy Stanley to say that. I personally think it's in an, in an attempt to offer a lame kind of an apologetic, a defense of Christianity against those who don't like Christ, against those who don't like Christians. And so we want to be more palatable to the culture. So we're going to say, oh yeah, we, yeah, we don't like the Old Testament God. We only like the New Testament God. Let's unhinge from the Old Testament. So that's Marcion-like. We see it in other areas as well. We see it in certain forms of dis dispensationalism. And I realize some of you are dispensational and I'm thankful that you listen to the show. I'm grateful for good and positive responses and feedback and sometimes constructive feedback. But 
I'm talking about what I'm going to call hyper-dispensationalists. I'm talking about uh, certain kinds of dispensationalists like C.R. Stam, who wrote a book called Things That Differ, The Fundamentals of Dispensationalism. And it is, it's quite honestly, it's pretty sad because I've known people who can't think straight because they've been so corrupted by Marcionism, but it's come through the dispensationalist C.R. Stam. And, uh, you know, what he does is he picks up on things like Paul saying, my gospel, and he just runs with it. This is what happens when you try to do a do-over. You say, well, all Christians are corrupt right now. I'm just going to get rid of all history, all creeds, all confessions, which some dispensationalists have done, and I'm going to start over. And so then you find Paul saying in 2 Timothy 2.8, my gospel I preached. Oh, so Paul's gospel is different than James' gospel, different from Peter's gospel. Paul's is different, and it's very, very Marcian, very, very Markian, if you prefer. And it, it just wreaks havoc, and people now don't have categories for reading their Bible, and now the Bible's so chopped up it's not even funny. And it's very, very Marcian-like. Now, it is true. There's a difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. There there are contours, if you will, when you read redemptive history. There are things that do change. Not everything is always the same, but let's not think of a different God or even a, a different gospel, but there are different, maybe we would call them economies. Uh, sometimes we see a Marcion-like uh, behavior or thinking today when people just talk about what they have no, they have no category for law. So somehow law is old covenant only. So anytime they see the word law, they sit, they think, oh, that's mosaic. Uh, no, that's not the case. We have law in the old, law in the new. We have grace in the old, grace in the new. Yes, it's important that we make distinctions, that we do see the uniqueness of the holy nation of Israel, and we're not them. So, but but thoughtful Christians who've gone before us, unlike Marcion, have helped us with some of these sorts of categories. So keep that in mind. We're going to do one more ist or one more ism. So I hope you're tracking. I hope you're hanging in there and you're able to be further equipped to acknowledge those who deny the faith, whether it be a Marcion or a Gnostic, or now we're moving on and we're going to talk about docetists or doceticism. Doceticism basically means to seem or to appear. And doceticism is an early church heresy that denied that Jesus was fully human. He only appeared to be a human. He was the phantom Jesus. It goes back to a Gnostic kind of thinking where matter is suspect at best. Once again, paging Mike Horton, Mike Horton, please pick up the phone in aisle five. In his The Christian Faith, he says that this matter of doceticism, it's heretical, it's bad, it's improper, it's a heresy. But I thought it was interesting. He points out the fact that it, this ends up going largely dormant, he says, uh, after the fourth century. But then he says it shows up again in certain areas in the fourth century, and they have this docetic kind of tendency among among the spiritualists, uh, also with the radical Anabaptists. Uh, he points out that Menno Simons taught that Jesus had taken his flesh from heaven, uh, that he had celestial flesh or heavenly flesh. It wasn't real flesh. Uh, and that's why oftentimes these radical Anabaptists they, they speak heretical kinds of things. So it's a, it's a form of doceticism. Uh, Horton points out that it was against this docetic view that the ancient creeds insisted that Christ was born ex Maria 
virgin, that is, from the Virgin Mary, which is explained to mean from the substance of his mother rather than simply through her. To state this point in contemporary terms, the incarnate God had Mary's genes. Something to think about there, that he was actually born of a woman, that he is the, the really and truly incarnate one. Uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, as John would say, long before doceticism, he was teaching us and equipping us to be able to refute it. And First John also is a great place to go, not just John 1, but First John chapter 4 says in verse 2, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, think incarnation, think real humanity, not just appearance, is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So humanity of Jesus contra doceticism is critical. We have to have the humanity of Christ. And it's important that we think in these terms because sometimes today we think it's all about the deity and it is all about the deity. He has to be God. He, he is the second person of the triune God. Divinity is critical, but oftentimes in the first century, or excuse me, in the second century and beyond, it's been the humanity that's been in question. Oftentimes people haven't had a problem with him being God because we have a pantheon of gods. We have many gods, polytheism, but he couldn't actually be one of us. And I think we've kind of fallen asleep at the wheel, at least the, the last couple of generations, maybe we're, we're making some strides, and I actually think we are, but for the last couple of generations, we've forgotten why Jesus needs to be a human being. And I would recommend to you the Active Obedience of Christ episodes that we aired. Those are episodes 23 and 24, because if you don't have the humanity of Jesus and a robust, uh, non-docetic view of Christ, then you don't need the Active Obedience of Christ. And I think that's actually one of the reasons why there's been a denial of the active obedience of Christ from people like John Nelson Darby, because John Nelson Darby had somewhat of a docetic kind of view. Uh, maybe it's referred to as something else. Technically, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce accused him of Apollinarianism uh, and downplaying, really downplaying the humanity of Christ and not having, not having a robust category. Uh, but scholars would tell us that Apollinarianism is a type of doceticism. I don't want to get us too far off track, but if you don't understand why he has to be a human being, you don't need him as a human being to obey the law perfectly for you and to fulfill all righteousness. That's what the act of obedience of Christ is about. And if you don't have that robust perspective, you might be maybe somewhat docetic in your at least tendencies and leanings, even if you're not coming right out and denying his humanity. Um, this is why Bruce said, who was also himself a member of the Brethren, he says that this matter is the besetting heresy of evangelical Christians. Uh, and that's Bruce writing, oh, he lived between 1910 and 1990. So keep that in mind. Theology matters. Heresies matter. Because if we know what has been heretical, maybe we'll look at our theology and we'll guard ourselves against it. He's got to be God, yes. But he also has to be a human being. And if not, we lose him as our savior because he needs to be one of us. Not only to atone for our sins, absolutely he does need to. Not only to be bodily raised from the dead on our behalf, he absolutely needs to uh, and to ascend, but also to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf.
If you've benefited from what you've heard, please share the Pactum with a friend. Give us five stars. Give us a good review. That always helps. And if you want to up your style game, let me tell you what. Check out our gear on thepactum.org on our website. And we will see you next time on The Pactum. Thank you.